friends, welcome to episode 17 of Cool Story with David J. McNeil. This episode is part two of a three-parter with the very engaging and always entertaining Mr. Tommy Chong. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate your support. This episode picks up my conversation with the one and only Canadian-American actor, writer, director, musician, businessman, cannabis rights activist, and comedian Tommy Chong. Sticking with the theme from part one, we did lose the signal briefly during this chat, but after that, it was smooth sailing. We covered a lot of ground in part two. We talked about race, politics, growing up in Calgary, the explosion of the popularity of Cheech and Chong, and Tommy's years as a stand-up comic. At one point during the conversation, I asked Tommy if he liked stand-up as an art form. And not because I had ignored the fact that he had done the circuit as a stand-up for so many years, but because I wondered whether he loved it as much as being part of an ensemble, whether perhaps being on the stage by himself was maybe not as much of a rush as it was to work with Cheech on stage. But of course that proved to not be the case, as the question sparked a ton of memories about working the clubs and all of the incredible artists, stand-ups, comedians he got to work with during that era. But as Tommy pointed out in part one, he has always been around greatness. And if anything, this episode delved into a lot of memories of mixing, mingling, and sharing a reefer or two with some of the biggest stars and luminaries of our times. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's have Tommy tell his story. I see you. Unmute. I just unmute. Recording. Let me see. Unmute. Okay. Gallery view. Mute audio. I see you with a big bunch of weed in your arms. That's me. That's you. Um, now you froze almost. Yeah, I still can't hear you. Oh, you still can't hear Oh, there you go. That? Yeah. Uh, now yeah, I heard you. There yeah. we go. Okay. I said, can you hear me? And you said, no, I still can't hear you. Yeah. <laughs> well, I couldn't at the time. That's universal, universal hand signal for I can't hear anything. Oh, okay. Uh, so how are you doing today? I'm doing fine, man. Yeah. I'm doing fine. So you're chatting with all yeah. kinds of people because the election's coming up? Well, yeah, the election, weed. It's mostly about the weed being legal, you know. It's a lot of marijuana things, you know. A lot of marijuana talk. Yeah, yeah. And Actually, so, one of the guys I talked to said, we don't call it marijuana anymore. We call it cannabis. Oh, yeah. Marijuana is the slave name. So, right. So we'll, so we'll call it cannabis. Yeah, well, I guess whenever uh, something changes status, um, they, they always want to rename it, right? Yeah. I get the feeling, you know. At this point in our conversation, I lost the connection one more time. When Tommy and I reconnected about a minute later, the conversation moved from marijuana being considered a slave name for cannabis to his own experiences witnessing racism around him as a young man. Well, 
well, you know, I was with a black band for years, and and we we fought through that whole that whole mindset. Yeah, you know, because you're a Canadian, they're Canadian uh, blacks, and uh, it's a difference. You know, they 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 had to endure this being the only black kid in a in a school uh, kind of thing, and uh, and uh, as a result, you you. you you get to be friends with the racist <laughs> right. people and, uh, and you allow for that ignorance because it's just ignorance, you mm-hmm. know, and it's, and it's the way people, uh, you know, the, the, like Trumpies now, you know, it's the same thing, you know, they, they don't think they're racist, but, uh, they are because it's more, more than anything. It's just ignorance. You're just ignorant of the fact, you know, that's all. Yeah. Well, I think, I think a lot of people seem to think that you have to, you know, to be a racist, you have to be really vulgar with people and all kinds of stuff. But being racist just means uh, you don't think other people deserve the same rights as you do. Right? Well, not, I don't think it's so much. Yeah. 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 No, you're right. You're right. You're, you're right. You're absolutely right. And, and they have that. Uh, yeah. It's uh, what's the word, uh, you know, in, in entitlement. Right. You know, they, they don't they think if you got any kind of uh, mix in you, I mean, certain people, then you weren't entitled to, you know, to be for some reason. I don't know. It, it's just a ignorant, just a whole ignorant approach, especially in Calgary. You know, I grew up in Calgary. Come on. I, I don't I, Everybody was equal except, the, for, you know, the black, everybody was treated equal, mm-hmm. but it was everybody, you know, because we had everything, Italians, uh, uh, Jews, uh, every, every, every kind of race mix you could think of. But yeah. yet Calgary was very racist, like cowboys were. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think it has a lot to do with the, the, the business that they're in. Because, you know, like farmers and that, you know, they can be racist because they don't want the cows making, messing up with the horses. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, 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 no, it's an interesting thing. You know, what's that Chinese proverb or saying, may you live in interesting times? We certainly live in interesting times. I don't know if they're, you know. (laughs) Oh, they're great. Oh, they're great. I love it. I love it because everything... Uh, my mother once told me, she said, uh, you know, be careful what you do and say, because you're going to be noticed yeah. of who you are. And so she always used to tell me, you know, make sure that, you know, you know that mm-hmm. you're always going to be noticed. And so in other words, you know, try to look presentable and try to act presentable. And when she said that to you, did she say that to you? Because uh, you were be- you were becoming well known, or she just meant that in general that the average person should should be careful what they say because they'll be noticed. No, I was real young. Okay. I was real young, and and you know what? She was harboring a secret. She was harboring the fact that I was that she was quarter Indian, and and I was uh, an eighth. You know, we 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 would be considered you know half breeds or you know natives, and and it was okay to be half Chinese for some reason. Right, but it was not okay to be. Uh, you know, it was a family secret that we just found out after we did the DNA, and uh, and then everything just fell into place. You know, because I had a crazy aunt, you know, and and she was uh, an alcoholic for the for the want of a better description. Mm-hmm. You know, she would 
they planned their drinking after five or whatever it was. And, uh, and then she never stopped until the next morning. Mm-hmm. But her story was great because she, in a drunken stupor, she met, met another drunk and they got married. Right. <laughs> and there were two drunks married. Well, he died. And then she found out that he had been awarded the Victoria Cross. And he, he got an enormous pension because oh, of yeah. that. And so for the rest of her life, she had this huge pension coming in every month. Yeah. And she was just by herself. And we were her only family. And so we, we uh, you know, anything that we needed, you know, uh, a, a new stove, uh, me, a guitar, an amplifier, anything like that. Mm-hmm. Auntie Irene, Auntie Irene <laughs> had the money. She, well, she would buy it for us. When was the last time you were back out? Uh, when was the last time you were in Alberta? God, years. On a tour or something? No, we went back for, oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. The last time I was there was touring with, with, uh, with Cheech and Shelby. Yeah. yeah. We, we did a show. We did a show at Glenmore, at the Glenmore uh, uh, Casino. Okay. Yeah. What was it like? And we had a, I had all my old friends. I had my first girlfriend. Oh, nice. And they're all there. We're all in our, in our 80s. Yeah. <laughs> And they're all, they're all there. They're, it's, it's a funny bunch. The only, like I got adopted into the black community in Calgary. And as a result, uh, they all came. It was so cute. And one of the daughters is just so gorgeous. Huge model. I mean, she's just strikingly beautiful. <laughs> and that was a daughter. And her mom's blind. Her, she, she took some bad medicine or something and she went blind. And but they always forget that she's blind, and they always walk off and leave her. And, hey, wait! <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, very funny. As soon as I got with the black culture, my laughter increased because mm-hmm. we 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 would do things that would make you laugh hysterically. You know, it yeah. was just it was all about dance and laugh, laughter, yeah. and music, and then it became music. And then, yeah, and the rest is history. Yeah. 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 That's but where it all came from. You, we talked a bit before about uh, your experience with uh, the Vancouver's and uh, how you were a musician. I think you said you started playing music at four. Um, when you, how did you make the jump to the, the whole Cheech and Chong thing and doing comedy? Uh, was that, like, was that, was that a plan or was that just kind of a fun thing you stumbled upon and it took off or... No, it was it was ordained, you know, because when I was with Motown, uh, when we go to Chicago or uh, actually it started before I was with Motown, you know, we went down to L.A. and and I got turned on to the committee in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. It was an improvisational uh, nightclub, uh, not improvisational uh, show. Yeah. And so that was my first taste of improbably acting and I got totally hooked on it. Yeah. And so wherever we'd go, we'd be in Chicago, I'd go see Second City and wherever we were at the improv. And and so I got, you know, and being a musician, you know, we were like a cover band. Yeah. You know, every all musicians are. You learn other tunes and 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 so in learning tune you had to hear it over and over and over again and then it would sink in. And so I, I had the same approach with comedy. 
And that's why most musicians are really good at remembering jokes, you know, because yeah. they have the timing and everything. And so, uh, so I really got involved in, you know, just for my own enjoyment. And then when I went to uh, Vancouver to work on the nightclubs after I got fired from Motown, I, um, I, I, Changed one of the clubs into an improvisational theater. Okay, uh, a strip a strip club, and I used the strippers as actresses, and and then that's where I met Cheech. Cheech yeah. was hired as a, as a straight man, and and then Cheech and I did comedy for nine months, yeah. nine months of uh, improv, and then uh, we got fired, and, and at the right time, and then Cheech and I stayed together, and the rest is history. Yeah. Yeah. And when, when was it, uh, when, like, how does, how does it, how does it happen that you guys are doing your stage work and then, and then you get a, an opportunity to do a film? Is that something you guys chase down yourselves or somebody come to you and say, you guys should put this on the screen or. No, no. And we went and got everything that we, we got, we went yeah. out and got it. You know, when we came to LA, just the two of us, because I'd been in the children circuit and the black clubs and I, I knew all, I knew that system. So, we we worked a lot of black clubs and we opened for a lot of black acts and mm. and um, and so we performed in front of a lot of black people so our show got very hip, mm-hmm. very 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 solid, and then uh, um, when we started playing in L.A. Uh, in you know in the in the in the valley then uh, we used to teach his uh, Chicanoism, <laughs> the fact that he's Chicano. <laughs> then we built an act around uh, him being a Chicano. And so we, uh, we conquered that world. Yeah. And, and, and then we got discovered by a, a record producer. And so we made, uh, what, nine albums uh, with him. And everyone was a hit. We got a Grammy for one. And yeah. Oh yeah. We we just went crazy in the in the comedy. And then I got tired of. Then we do a record tour, do a record tour, do a record tour. And then I got tired of going to Australia because we got we, we were popular in Australia and we'd miss summer <laughs> right. in in America. And then we'd miss summer in in Australia. And so for three years we just had nothing but winter. Mm-hmm. And so then I I decided you know I want to get off the road, and so I wrote a a, a movie, um, and then uh, so, you know I, then Lou Adler our record producer, he got the feeling you know that that I was going to do a movie, and so then he went and got us a, a movie deal with him involved. Yeah. And so and so then uh, the movie started out to be the working title was Cheech and Chong's Greatest Hits. Mm-hmm. Because he owned all our albums, he wanted us to do, uh, you know, a movie with using all the characters. Sure. But instead, uh, Cheech and I decided we would just use the Pedro and Man character, mm-hmm. and we'll do a whole movie around one one set of characters, and that's what happened with Up and Smoke. Yeah. And then once we did Up and Smoke, then we just went to another stratosphere, and uh, we never came back. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I asked you this before, but do you remember the first time you smoked weed? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Yeah, yeah, I sure do. I remember plain as day. I was 17 years old. I was in a jazz club in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Mm-hmm. And uh, Raymond Ma, this bass, Chinese bass player, came up and he'd been in L.A. And he handed me a joint and a Lenny Bruce record. And... And I took him, I put the joint in my pocket, then we smoked his. Yeah. 
And that that was when I first little little hint of the pot culture, you know, where you just share a joint. And I took a couple of tokes and and I was listening to a record called uh, "Lonely Woman" by Ornette Coleman. Okay. And and my memory is, yeah. Again, be, being a musician, you have to remember stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't just let it go. And so, so these memories stick in my head. And uh, and, and that's yeah. That's that was the first time. Yeah, so I, I, I'm, I'm guessing it was pretty good weed then. <laughs> it was crap weed. I had nothing to chew, you, you know, compared to what? <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? Yeah. Uh, the only weed is the good weed. Yeah. That's all you got. That's the best weed in town, man. Yeah. I remember uh, uh, first time I ever smoked weed, I think I was 14 or 15, and I went out with a couple of buddies. It was a Sunday afternoon, and we used to climb on top of schools and go get all the tennis balls and stuff off the roof. And so we climbed up on top of the school and one of my buddies was with a guy named Claude and another guy named Tom. And one of the guys said, Hey, you want to smoke a joint? And I was like, Oh yeah, sure. I'll try that. Out. And so we smoked a joint on the roof, which is a bad idea because then I had to figure out how to climb off the, the roof. Oh, <laughs> you were stuck up there for a while. I yeah. So it took a while until finally I figured out how to climb back down. And then my buddy played a joke on me and, I, and this is probably a joke that a lot of people played on each other, but it scared the shit out of me. So we're walking home and I'm like, oh, I start sweating and I'm thinking, well, I got to go home and have dinner with my parents and they're going to know I'm high. So now I'm nervous as hell, right? They would not approve. So we're walking home and I'm, oh, I've got to go home and have dinner with my parents. They're going to figure out for sure. I said, how long does this last for? And my buddy Claude, without a beat, says, about two weeks. So I start freaking out. I'm like, I got exams. I got I to gotta try out for baseball. I got another try out for lacrosse. I can't be high for two weeks, man. I got shit to do. <laughs> and he did it without a beat. And he was like 14. I thought that is a genius joke to play on somebody. Uh, First time they ever smoked weed. <laughs> pure pot joke. Yeah. Oh, this is great. I so how did the dinner go? Did you make a fool of yourself? Eating no, dinner? I just went home and I did that thing where I didn't talk much and I looked at my plate and <laughs> I just tried try to be as inconspicuous as I could. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody looks at you, oh, he's stoned. Yeah, or, or they're just a weird teenager. Teenagers are weird anyways. At that where age. was that, in Toronto? No, that was in Ottawa. I lived in Ottawa. Ottawa when I was a kid. Yeah, my my dad worked for the civil service, and so we. we did you ever skate on the, the canal on the river there? Oh yeah, all the time. We did that all the time when we were kids. Wasn't that fun? Yeah, Ottawa was a great place to grow up. It, oh, you know, because there's bet. so much fun stuff to do, even in the winter, like skiing and stuff like that. Oh, yeah, I mean they yeah. they, and then I loved the way they had the old commissioners. They were the police. <laughs> they would, yeah, along the yeah behave yourself anybody got out of out of line those commissioners come over and shake their finger at you yeah yeah no it was it was a great place to grow up but I, you know i got into the arts and stuff and it wasn't a place to work in tv and film but uh no. it was a great place to grow up did you did you yeah. like growing up in calgary at all oh yeah 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 i had a, I had a beautiful childhood yeah beautiful i mean i had no you know you, you don't know any better but the Summers were long and hot, and, and the winters were long and cold. <laughs> yeah, I loved it. Loved it. Yeah, loved it. Every bit of it. That's my that's my memories. That's that's my favorite memories now. Mm-hmm. You know, being a kid yeah. and being carefree. Oh, running wild. Yeah, you know, you know that's because one of the things. I like about being down here in Costa Rica is all the kids down here. They kind of play like we used to play. There's no yeah. like 
there's no helicopter parenting and the kids are just running around all day long and they go home when the sun goes down kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. You don't get to do it. And, a lot and they take, they take care of themselves. They, they make sure they do their chores, make sure they do what they have to do. And then they go out and play with their kids, with their friends They make up their own, their own games. And yeah. 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 And it reminds me of when I was a kid and I, I find when I go back home to North America that the, the kids don't play that way as much as they used to. No. You know, there's too many rules. It's a, worried. it's a, like a iPhone culture now. Mm-hmm. The kids are always on their phones and, and they're playing with their phones and back and forth. And yeah. 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 It's, or, or it's organized sports and parents are, you know, are, are treated like, like, you know, like rebels or something. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I took my son to play uh t-ball, you know, and organized and I got thrown out of the game because you're not supposed to heckle the, the other <laughs> kid. <laughs> so, so I got, thrown, I got thrown out of the game. <laughs> You're one of those parents. Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, you get excited about your kids, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, you can do it. My kid could hit the ball, but he couldn't. He had he had the slowest takeoff ever. You know. <laughs> <laughs> he, he would yeah. kind of he kind of uh, put his wheels, spin his wheels first, and then he'd run. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but my oldest boy, my oldest boy, he was he was a star athlete. No matter where he went, but he we, we my my wife put him in French schools, and so so he's kind of bilingual. You know, my daughter is totally bilingual, but my son he uh, went to uh, no it was a, uh, I forget the name of it, but it was a French school. Alice. Uh, Alice Francais. Yeah. Yeah. And. Uh, but they would have, you know, a French kind of styled sporting sports, you know, they did sure. mandated, you know, but it wasn't organized, it wasn't good, which was good. Yeah. Because I, I, I like the arts better, you know. And uh, he'd, when he'd have to run a race, he'd just kick off his shoes, he'd run barefoot. Yeah. And he was fast as can be. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I did that. I, I went to French schools. First time I went to an English school was when I was like 15 years old. Yeah. Yeah, it's cool. It's kind of like having different languages. It's, it's like being a, you know, like a musician. It's a different language. It makes your brain work differently. It's a good workout for your brain to switch. Oh, languages it's the back best. It's the best. My son, you know, he's taught the French uh, manners. And so he's so comfortable around adults, mm-hmm. you know, because he's got this way of looking, looking at the adults, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Being in their world. Right. You know, and, and shaking their hand. Yes, sir. No, sir. And yes, ma'am, and you know, he, oh, all our friends just love you know love him to death because he's he's and he's been that way ever since he was a little guy. Yeah, because that's what they teach in there, you know. Yeah. My other son, he was uh, the ones that, uh, in uh, on Vancouver Island. Now he he was a little different. <laughs> he was a musician. Yeah, a stone musician, drummer. How many but total kids was, have you got? Six. Six kids? I got, uh, no, I got uh, two boys and a, and a daughter with, yeah. with my second wife. Yes. And I got two daughters with my first wife. Okay. I got four grandkids and I got two great grandkids. And uh, I got four, is four or five now because I got a granddaughter. Yeah. Just brand, brand new. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, congratulations. Well, thank you. And how, how often do you guys, do you ever all get together or is it kind of, that's kind of hard to orchestrate? 
We can't do it now because of the pandemic. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. We we made a point. The kids, you know, they organize it, you know, and, and we always ended up uh, doing Christmas together, you know. Yeah. And uh, it was first it was in Vancouver, which was fun, you know, because we lived at the bottom of a ski mountain. Yeah. And so everybody goes skiing all for the holidays, and then. Uh, then we moved down here and because of the pandemic, we haven't been able to get together right. on any great, great things, but talking about, so kids, talking about kids, uh, you, do you, you get a lot of young, you, you get a lot of really young people coming up to you know who you are for different reasons. Eh? I'm guessing. Oh yeah. Leo of the 70s show was the biggest one. Yeah. That was a big, that yep. was a, got you a whole new audience. That, oh yeah, you got me. You got me. The, the latest crop, you know. Yeah. They're older now. They're all yeah. older now. And now Zootopia, and Dancing with the Stars. When I was on Dancing with the Stars, it was really weird because I was walking uh, to some mall, and these young girls went screaming, "Ah, that's him! That's him!" Yeah. And oh, and I just they came around me. I felt it was weird, man. Young girls. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Going, ah, I loved you. Uh-huh. That's a whole different thing, eh? Oh, my God. You know, because Cheech and I are, you know, I'm playing an old stoner on, on TV, you know. But when you're in Dance with the Stars, you know, they have you looking kind of dapper, you know. And, and young kids, they love to dance. You know, yeah. They love to dance. And so the young girls were, ah. I never had that before. It was it was nice. I liked it. That was a great, was that great. was a really great show, the 70s show. That's 70, yeah. 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 You know, I knew somebody else who worked on that. I, I, I was lucky enough to get to know Mitch Hedberg, and he he had a part on that. He played... Uh, I remember Mitch. Yeah, he played the cafeteria guy. Yeah. That show. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. a shame he's gone. He was a hell of a talent. Wasn't he? Yeah. Whoa. Whoa. How'd he go? He died of an overdose. That's right. Yeah. God, he, what, a, what, a, what a talent. What a talent. Yeah, funny guy, very much uh, in the same vein as uh, Stephen Wright, you know. Yeah, just uh, that, just the, blur one-liners. Those just those headshots. Those yeah, yeah. Observations. Yeah, you know. yeah. Wright's still going strong. Huh? Yeah, yeah. I've had the chance to see him before. He's 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 still he's still still doing well. He's he's good. Uh, he's good fun to see. That's that that's excellent stand-up stuff. Oh boy. Yeah. Who's your favorite to see you do stand-up? Well, you know, I went through uh, Louis B. C.K. Yeah. I loved Louis. I saw him right in the beginning, you know, when he started. Yeah. Um, let me think. Uh, yeah. Or do, you, do, you, do you like stand-up as, a, as an art form? Do you- Oh yeah, oh yeah. I was I was in, in involved very deeply in, in it. Uh, but let me think. You know, Chris Rock and and yeah, uh, Chris Rock, David Chappelle. That. You know, yeah. loved, that show he did was guys, incredible. You know. Which one? The Chappelle Show. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that was incredible. Yeah, incredible. Oh, he he's he's a very hip guy. Very hip guy. I was in a movie with him. And uh, I like Dave. Yeah. Um, let's see. I'm trying to think of the Steve Martin. Yeah. No, I, I really like Steve Martin because we come up uh, basically the same time. You know, yeah, Cheech yeah, and for Chong, sure. Steve Martin, and 
in oh man i i saw him when he first started at the troubadour and at the at the roxy actually what what a powerhouse what a powerhouse guy yeah what a mind yeah, hey, yeah. hey, guess what? Uh, the other day I'm at a fight. Sugar Ray Leonard was putting, promoting a fight. And all the celebs, all the rappers were there. And I go to the bathroom and I come out. And there's the guy who said, hey, man, I'm a big fan. Uh, I'm Eddie Murphy. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty cool, eh? <laughs> I said, oh, wow. Eddie <laughs> Murphy. And apparently his kid's a big fan of mine. Yeah. And so, and so he's, this kid saw me. And so Eddie wanted to meet me and, and, you know, so we come up and say, I'm a big fan. There's another genius, you know, Yeah. for a while that stand up that he did. Oh, well, raw, that, that, the tingle. Yeah. Raw oh. and uh comedian. I used to buy his, yeah. I used to have oh. a couple of his albums back in the day when that oh. thing to do. Yeah. Powerful powerful yeah because he could do all those you know and then then he got him that cosby kick all that yeah oh and cosby i know i knew i knew bill yeah pretty well uh, i loved his his stand-up his, his early early stand-up you know <laughs> i i try to defend him you know when he got caught uh, with the girls <laughs> my my daughter worked for him uh, on a show called "You Bet Your Life," right? And she she was the 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 girl that was her his sidekick, you know, right? right. And and, and, um, and she always loved Bill, you know. And she got to know the the daughters and everything. And it wasn't until after he got incarcerated that she told me that Bill kind of put a put his little he tried on her, but you know, mm -hmm. she is, she's too right. up for, for that. You know, she, she's been streetwise since she was 15. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. So she wasn't going to go to, I'll help you with your career thing. You know? Right. Yeah. 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 I've known a couple of people that have met him. I knew a woman who was kind of a little bit, yeah. Some people are good at, very good at compartmentalizing things. eh? Yeah. You know, showing you what they want and then keeping their dirty little, <laughs> you know. Well, you know, I, it, it's, it's a soul. You, you sell your soul at some point, mm -hmm. you know. Like, that's what I loved about Lenny Bruce. You know, he never sold his soul. Yeah. Uh, you know, he, he kept true to his, his, his form, you know. Same, mm -hmm. Sam Kennison was another one. Yeah. So they, they try to belittle Sam. You know, they try to knock him down to you know, that little tiny little character on TV. Mm -hmm. But he's, Sam was great. Sam was a big fan. Yeah. He was funny. When I first started doing stand-up, I think it was my second gig. I was at the Laugh Factory. And I, you know, I, I had barely had five minutes. You know, I just had enough to get on the stage and get off. And, and Sam heard that I was doing comedy. And he, first of all, uh, he was a mainstay at the comedy store and he never went to the laugh factory right. because Jamie, Jamie didn't, didn't want him there, you know? And so Jamie um, tried everything, make sure that Sam wouldn't come. And so <laughs> when I, when I was there, you know, to do my little five minutes, Sam heard about it. He came over. And so I said to Sam, Sam, are you going to do some time? He said, for you, I'll do some time. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so he gets on stage, kind of really takes, takes a mic out of the guy's hand who was on stage. <laughs> 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 yeah. And, and, started, and it just, just started screaming at everybody in the club. <laughs> and, and, and a lot of them couldn't wait. They couldn't run out of there fast enough. 
Yeah. yeah. It was for, for Tommy Chong, I'll do anything. Yeah. <laughs> oh, he was funny. It's one thing to get bumped. Ended, huh? Go ahead. I was gonna say one, I was gonna say it was one thing to get bumped. It's another thing to get bumped by Sam Kinison. You don't want to go on Sam. after Sam. <laughs> 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 he, he literally took the mic out of the guy's hand. Then he went crazy. Oh, he was funny. Then I met Bill Hicks too. Do you know? Are you familiar with Bill Hicks? Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, I, I, I didn't, uh, yeah. I didn't know Bill at the time, but I know, I know of his work after the fact. You know, after he got sick and everything. Oh yeah. 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 yeah, he he was he was dying of, uh, I guess cancer or something. Yeah, and he he was on a he was on a barbecue tour, where he was he wasn't working, he he was just going around. Uh, to, him and his buddy were going to all the good barbecue stands in in America. Yeah, like uh, uh, in Kansas, and, and I was working in Kansas at the time, and he heard I was there, so he came down to the club and sat and, and watched a set of mine. But oh, I love Bill Hicks too, man. He was he was crazy. Yeah. So good. him and Sam, they all they all came out of the same same cesspool. <laughs> <laughs> Angry little troop of uh, of new comedians. Well, it worked. It worked. Yeah. You see, Sam got his act because he was so crazy. They wouldn't put him on till two in the morning. Right. And 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 and. and by the and so people got used to being up at two in the morning to go see Sam because yeah. he was so crazy. And then Robin Williams, uh, I, I I was there when Robin started his act and started doing his stand up at the Comedy Store. Mm-hmm. Another crazy improv, you know, just off the top of his head kind of guy. Yeah. yeah, I was there. I was there when, uh, when the, and Cheech and I had because we did our records. You know, we had. We we started before the comedy stores, mm-hmm. and then then halfway through our career, they started opening the stores. And after we did up in Smoke Cheech and I went and did a week at the comedy store. Okay, and that was one of the best times. The greatest thing after the, our first uh, show, uh, we went to walk off stage, and Richard Pryor was there. <laughs> helping us off the stage <laughs> as a gesture of you know the respect of, of respect yeah 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 that was some good times man yeah no i i love stand-up i always do i always do uh you know now there it's a di- different breed but I, I still love it you know and in my car you know i turn on the comedy channel and i listen to the guys love it yeah yeah, you ever, you ever, uh, you ever get starstruck? I got cured of that really fast by Jack Nicholson. Oh yeah, I met him at a party. Teach and I had just, you know, we just did our first album, and and we're at this party, and everybody was there. The Stones were there, all the uh, Rolling Stones, and Mick Jagger, and uh, and John Lennon. Paul, uh, not Paul, but John, Rod Stewart. And so I was looking for a place to smoke a big fat joint, a big stinky mm-hmm. joint. So I went in Lou's bed. I asked Lou, Lou said, go in the bedroom. So I went in the bedroom and I lit up a joint. I looked down, there's Paul sitting on the, I mean, I mean, John Lennon sitting on the floor. Mm-hmm. So I walked over, handed him the, the joint. And John said, no, 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 I got my immigration problems. I, you know, oh, I'm not right, smoking yeah. right now. And so then I turned around and, and, and uh, 
um, was it? Rod Stewart comes in and he starts messing with his hair. Remember that hair? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he started fixing his hair. So I offered him a joint and he said, no, no. So I smoked up a little bit to put it down and I walked out and who like run into us? Jack Nicholson. And I just saw Jack on the screen. Uh, the last detail, I think it was mm-hmm. the movie. And in the movies, he, he does this scene where he's combing his hair and he doesn't have any hair. <laughs> <laughs> and he combs it for a good 10 minutes on, on the screen. Yeah. And, and I was amazed. I'm watching the movie, and I was amazed at that, you know, the way the command that he had, you know, because he just commanded that. And so I mentioned it to Jack right away. And um, and I said, oh, man, that scene you were in, you're combing your hair. And I said, was that improv or was that written in the script? And he just looked at me like like I was had shit on my head or something. <laughs> and he said, excuse me. And he pushed me aside and he walked, walked it away. Yeah. Just stiff me. I mean, I, you couldn't set it up any worse, any better. <laughs> and uh, because I, I, I'm quite sure he didn't know who I was. Because right. after, after uh, you know, we became famous and Jack and Lou, you know, were there. In fact, uh, they would, every once in a while, we'd drive to the Laker game with Jack. Right. And he'd be driving. And that's that was another it was like skydiving, you know, because Jack didn't know any rules. He'd drive down the wrong side of the road to get in the parking lot. Right. <laughs> the car's coming like crazy, and he, he'd pull out his big Mercedes and just bypass everybody and pull yeah. in. And, and then, you know, he, he was Jack Nicholson. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that's where we got the ba- uh, Basketball Jones, the song. Okay. Uh, because Cheech was in the back seat, back seat singing, I got basketball, Joe. got basketball, Joe. <laughs> <So. laughs> just, just dying because Jack was driving so crazy. You, you used his car in Up in Smoke, right? His Beetle. Yeah. His, uh, yeah. He donated it to Lou. Lou yeah. was uh, the, the director, so he donated that one. And we put right. the, the Volkswagen, uh, I mean, the Rolls-Royce grill on it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I saw somebody here in uh, in my town in in, uh, in Costa Rica down here. People people down here drive uh, you know golf carts and tuk-tuks, right. And I, I saw some guy the other day. He painted up his uh, his tuk tuk to look like a Rolls Royce. It was like black and white checker with a big Rolls Royce thing on the front. I thought that was pretty good. I love that. I, love that. <laughs> uh, I was going to ask you too about. Um, uh, you know, we were talking about stand-up, and I was checking out some uh, a stand-up you did a, a few years ago. It was at a strip club. It was it was something you did uh, with Shelby. Uh, you were at a strip club, and you were talking about uh, the the whole thing where you got busted for the bongs. And, oh, right. And, yeah, and I remember years ago because. Uh, 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 when I met your daughter Precious, she was telling me about what had happened and how you and your son had got in trouble with that and what had happened. It was still early days, and I guess you didn't really know all the information at the time. Back then, the story was seemed like the story was that 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 you had a kid who worked at your shop, and 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 he was kind of like the weak link, and somebody talked him into shipping a bong. But then I watched your stand up, and you were saying that 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 the feds planted that guy in your shop. Yeah, yeah, they did. They did, yeah. Uh, what happened? We were under surveillance for a right. year. I was for sure. Yeah. And they would find me in Arlington 
uh, Texas. And in the, the 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 Narcs were so obvious. They they wore headbands. Well, no one was wearing headbands, right? <laughs> yeah. And and the 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 people that worked at the shop, they knew they were Narcs, and so they would walk beside them with big DEA T-shirts on, right? And and, and stand next to them wherever they went. <laughs> they would stand next to them, DEA, and I still didn't get the hint. Mm. And finally, they, they, because I was there signing bongs mm-hmm. and selling them. And, and so then he asked me to come outside. I went outside, and they recorded this. And they showed it at my trial. Uh, or, you know, the, the evidence was shown to my lawyers. Yeah. That, and they asked me, uh, these, these pipes you're selling, they're not just for marijuana. They're not just for tobacco use only, are they? And I said, hell no. Yeah, and these are pot. They're for pot, but he says, "What are they for?" I said, for, "For pot, of course. You know that's why they're so good. You know they're, they're glass yeah. and they're they're healthy." That I had no clue. I had so many many clues, but I missed every one of them. <laughs> yeah, and when I think of you going to prison, uh, you got you got what a little bit less than a year? Was that right? I got nine months. Nine months. Like aside from. Aside from Johnny Cash going to prison, I can't think of few other people that would go to prison that would be more welcome than you. To Johnny, right? it was right from the from the get go. See, I was in a camp in the back, but they they wanted me to go through the uh, the, the gates in the front, you know, officially. And so I I went in their gates, and they said they apologize. We have to handcuff you. It's mm-hmm. just a custom. So they handcuffed me, and then I went through the gates and then they took the cuffs off and then the guy says okay I'll, I'll, i'm driving you over to the camp it was one of the guards and i get in the truck and he pulls out an album he said will you sign this for me <laughs> <laughs> so, so i signed the album for him and then we got to the camp and it was there was a great uh, a, a tommy chong gr- a greeting team there <laughs> you know they greeted me um, Jimmy, the guy that was in charge of wardrobe and everything, mm-hmm. Jimmy took me in. He said, I'll show you around, man. You know, he said, I'm a big fan. I love you guys. And, and, and then I went and got my uniform. And, and he says, oh, I got the best. You know, it was a very, you know, Chicanos are very fastidious about their clothes. Yeah, sure. And so he got me old, old, uh, old uh, OG uh, Dickies. Okay, yeah, and, yeah. And only the hip guys had them so oh, yeah. he got me a nice outfit <laughs> he got my whole outfit and then they, they showed me where my bunk was going to be and, and then one guy he says man he says are you hungry you want anything he opened his locker it's just full of food i thought he was a commissary mm-hmm. <laughs> i thought he was the guy that sold the food yeah, but yeah. it was just it was just his locker yeah. and then uh, as soon as i got uh settled on you know with the bunk in the in the, the locker then they said, uh, these guys want to take pictures, you know. And so I went out, went out in the yard, and I spent the rest of the day taking pictures yeah. of, uh, with all the inmates. And then they eventually had a rule that I, I, I didn't have to, I didn't, I couldn't do it anymore. Mm-hmm. But in the beginning, I, we, I did pictures with everybody. And while I was there, I was trying to take pictures, and I couldn't because these pink clouds were just huge in the in the sky, and and they're beautiful you know i'm kind of like a uh, sky watcher you know mm-hmm. and, I, and, I, and they kept telling me hey uh can you look at the camera because i kept looking up 
looking at the pink clouds. And um, and I had to go two weeks without a phone call home. Mm-hmm. And so uh, so then I went back to my back cube, and then, then I got introduced to all the all the first people that come up. You know, all the guys come up, and then eventually the guy that I ended up hanging with the most, or one of the guys. Eric Larson, he was a golf caddy right. for uh, Mark Alcovecchi, and, and he, he was doing time there. And he was like in charge of all the intelligent uh, stars and that. Mm-hmm. And so he came up, and then when I met Eric, and then he, he ran the garden, you know, the, the vegetable garden that they, they grew uh, vegetables for the homeless, for mm-hmm. the food bank. Right. And he ran that, and we were allowed to eat out of the garden. And so uh, I only went to the mess hall just because I wanted to go and just to have that experience mm-hmm. of, of, going, of eating with, uh, with the other uh, inmates. Yeah. And, uh, but for the most part, I, I had these home-cooked uh, gourmet meals every night. Yeah. There's four of us, and we, we would eat in the TV room. So we had like a bank of television sets uh, to watch while we yeah. ate. <laughs> and, oh, man. No, it was uh, it was an, it was a, a great experience. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. What, what what did what did you learn most from that, or what 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 surprised you most about being in that situation? Well, I, I you know I grew up with with a lot of ex cons because when I lived in Calgary, uh, there you know people would get released from prison and there'd be no place for them to live, mm-hmm. and when we moved up to our our, our nice wartime house in, on the, in the North Hill in Calgary, we had an extra bed. More than, no, we had an extra room. Actually, my, my sister bunked with my mom, mom. We had an extra room for extra money, and we rented it out to, uh, to the students at the, the Tech College. And then uh, I started running into these... Ex cons, you know, get out of jail, guys. And yeah, guys who just got just got out, you know, nowhere to go, nowhere, you know. So uh, quite a few came home and, and lived with me, and that's where I got my stories from prison and everything else from these guys. You know? mm-hmm. And so that's that's where I really got a mindset into the prison system, which what, what was going on, you know. And and granted, you know, for the most part, there, there are bad actors in there, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a lot of times it was just unfortunate, uh, you know, poor poor people that, you know, just had a bad bad day or a bad night or something, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And, and and so so that that changed my my whole attitude toward toward incarceration into that. And so when I when I got playing music, because again you know uh, though I, I was in army cadets, and then and because I could play guitar, there was another guitar player who sang, and then we teamed up, and he was an Elvis impersonator, so full blood Sarsi native, Dick Bird, and uh, so I backed him up, you know whenever he needed a backup. And uh, then eventually I started dancing, uh, doing, uh, you know, the community dances, you know, rock and roll. That's when rock and roll, rhythm and blues, rock and roll. And I learned how to jive, learned how to do Lindy Hop. And I got pretty good mm-hmm. uh, with, uh, with my black partner. We went, won a few uh, 
dance contest. And, uh, and then I hooked up with an a, 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 a athlete named Tommy Milton. He was a singer and a very good running back. And so we put a band together, and mostly football players. And so we were pretty uh, well-built band, you know. <laughs> we were like the first punk rock guys, you know. Right, Only yeah, yeah. We, were, we were for real jocks first, mm -hmm. and then musicians and singers uh, second. And so that was their band, and, and that, I got a taste of fame. And then I, I started a team club in Calgary because of my experiences with the ex-colleagues and that, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I realized that Calgary teenagers needed something to do, you know, Saturday night. There was nothing for them to do. And so we started that dances, and they got very popular. So popular that we eventually got kicked out of Bank uh, Calgary, and so we went to Vancouver, and that's when I became a, a full-time yeah. uh, entertainer. Became a career. Yeah. Yeah. Full-time. Yeah. And yeah, there's been a few in between because you know, being Canadian, you're never out of work. You know, <laughs> there's always some somebody needs somebody somewhere in right. Canada. Yeah, you know, there's always a help wanted sign somewhere. Yeah. And I worked all my life. Usually I would be taking over a job that a kid, you know, he's going away or leaving. And say, hey, you know, deliver meat. You want the job? Yeah, yeah. I never turned down the job. Never yeah. turned down a cry for help. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. yeah. And the beauty was back then, too, that you, you could, if you were 14, 13 or whatever, as long as you wanted to work, you could get a job. Always. Yeah. Always. Yeah. There was always. always something to be done, like you said. Always something, yeah, yeah. yeah. Hold this, do that, you know. And and then as I got older, you know, I, I thought I was, I, I wanted to work for like the telephone company, right? You know, so I applied there, and the next thing you know, I got hired. But it was just in the band. We had a band at the time, you know. But you know, we weren't making the music was like a hobby, mm -hmm. you know. And whatever we made, we'd go and spend it in Chinatown to have a meal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because we yeah. had money. <laughs> yeah. Whenever you had money in Calgary, you went to Chinatown and had a good meal. <laughs> <laughs> was there, and, was there uh, a moment where you knew you could, you could maybe do, uh, like, have a career in entertainment? Do you remember when that was? Oh, no, it was when we got, uh, when we went to Vancouver, you know, we yeah. did our usual you know, apply and then get the job. And then the band broke up because we never had an agent, you know, to keep us on the road. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and then we got a call this, we had fans in Vancouver and they started, uh, uh, I forgot his name. No. Anyway, uh, he started a, another nightclub and then he got Tommy, the singer and Tommy called us up says, you know, once he wants the band back. And so, Bernie and I, we drove from Calgary to Vancouver for the second time, mm -hmm. and uh, and there we are. And and that, this time we we just moved to Vancouver, and uh, we stayed there. And, and the band played for a while, and then we broke up. You know, we ran out of gigs, and we broke up. Then I started doing solo gigs, and then then the band got back yeah we got back together again then we met bobby taylor and then bobby taylor came and then we really started doing well and then this songwriter heard about us and he came down and he saw some poetry that i'd written and he put it to music and we got does your mama know about me right and then then that took us to motown and 
yeah, and the rest is uh, rest is history, as they say. Yeah, you you don't strike me as a guy who you don't strike me as a guy who stresses a lot. I could be wrong, but you, no, no. Did you? Uh, would you? If did you ever look back and go, oh, I wish I'd done that different, or it seems like you just kind of you, you've kind of you go wherever the wind takes you. Whenever, yeah, exactly, exactly. Wherever the the bud takes me. The bud, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I. Um, no, I, I. When I was playing, you know. Yeah, when we had one of the bands, we, we were. I was playing. We met these jazz musicians, and this one. Uh, God, what's his name now? Anyway, he's the guitar player in in uh, in Toronto, I guess. Sonny Greenwich. Mm-hmm. Sonny Greenwich was his name. He turned me on to a my first metaphysical book. It was called The Third Eye by Lops, T. Lopsang Rampa. Okay. And and it's a, a story about a English uh, man who was a reincarnated Buddhist monk, and he came back as an Englishman. But he somehow remembered who he was, you know, mm. and and so he wrote a book about the third eye, about the whole Tibetan uh, culture, and, mm-hmm. and and you know the over self and all that, and so that got me interested in the metaphysical world, and then I started reading other books. Okay. Yeah. Okay, we're gonna leave here. They're gonna come pick us up at six. Okay. Okay, picks us up. Okay. Yeah. Getting to be like that. <laughs> My boss just came in. <laughs> <laughs> the commandant <laughs> just gave me orders. <laughs> uh, but what was I saying? Um, uh, just you were talking about that book that you 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 read and you started getting into the meta- metaphysical. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. So so then I read another book by uh, Catherine Ponder. And that really stuck with me, you know, about affirmative thinking and everything. And that got me further. And then I was in New York. Uh, this is after, let's see, what, what we, yeah, was, oh, this is Cheech and I. Mm-hmm. I guess Cheech and I, uh, yeah, we're in New York. We got a gig and summertime and I'm walking. Were we doing movies? Could have been movies, could have been the movie time. Anyway, I was walking to the gym and all of a sudden I felt this force literally turn me into a building. It was Harper Collins uh, 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 publishing. Yeah. yeah. And boom, I'm in the in this thing. And it was like someone was pushing me, tugging yeah. me. And I, and I'm next thing I went over uh, this row of books. And then literally my hand reached down and picked up this book. And it's the autobiography of Joel S. Goldsmith. And I took the book home and I became a, a Goldsmith's uh, uh, disciple. Right. Joel S. Goldsmith. Do you know who he is? I don't know. I'll oh, have to yeah. Check him out. Him out. Okay. Check him out. He's on, online. All these guys are online. And so then I really got into goldsmith and he's all about you know why we're here and what we're doing and and all that you know 
Yeah, yeah. And then in this book, in Goldsmith books, he talks about uh, Emmett Fox. And Emmett Fox is another spiritualist, which I am reading now. Uh, you know, there it is over there. Uh, yeah, Emmett Fox is now my the book that I read all the time now. Mm-hmm. I, I went through all the Goldsmith things. I read every one of them, turned my kids on to them, turned my daughter on to them. Um, and then when I was in, in, in prison, there was some Goldsmith books there, you know, did already. He was really good for people in prison. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and, and that's where I'm at now. I'm with uh, Emmett Fox now. And, uh, and, and when I'm, I'm going to be doing a podcast with my son, he's in, like I said, in the West coast of, uh, Dufino in Vancouver Island. And, and we're going to do a, because he's a healer, I, I'm, I'm also going to get more into Emmett Fox and, and, and on that line of thinking. Yeah. Because um, Emmett Fox explains the Bible. See, there's so many misconceptions about the Bible. You know, in fact, that's what, what the most ministers or the preachers and that do. They they take the Bible and they just use it. You know, the way they literally. See it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And Emmett Fox explains that the Bible is fiction. Mm-hmm. You know, it's from different stories, but uh, but for the most part, you know, nobody wrote back in those days. Mm-hmm. They just told stories. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, and, and writing didn't come until the printing press, really. Sure. And then, and that's why the Bible is written in verses and that, because the, these anal uh, writers, you know, had to have a way of kind of, you know, piling everything. Sure. But, but uh, in reality, these, these were streams of consciousness from the writers themselves. Yeah. And, and uh, some of it is based on, on real, real uh, people. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, it's it's writer's imagination, but it's all uh, divine inspiration, and so so they're all all the verses are filled with with these incredible truths. Mm-hmm. But in order to find the truths, you really have to understand the symbols that were written in the in, in the Bible. You know, like mountain has a different word you know when they say you go to go to the mountain a lot of times it's it, it just means you're the problem that you have at hand that's mm-hmm. your mountain that you have to okay, climb yeah, yeah yeah you know what i'm saying yeah and so emmett fox he just he, he 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 goes through like the lord's prayer the ten commandments and that and then and he he tells you what what is meant mm-hmm. and then then they and both these guys they didn't write they they were recorded mm-hmm. yeah. because they they were given speeches or or they were given talks and they were being channeled. Yeah. You see, and and that happens to me every once in a while. I'll write, I'll be channeled, mm-hmm. and I can feel it, and mm-hmm. I can feel it, and, and, and because I look at what I've written, and there's there's no way in the world I would think of that. You know, sure. it was just the the channeling, and so that's where I'm at now, and. Uh, and and part of the, like with 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 Joel Goldsmith, he he was he was this, uh, a Jewish businessman that uh, kind of failed at everything until he found out that he had the power to heal. 
And what he would do, he was very intelligent. And he was just from New York, a Jew. And he was raised kind of like like Jews in America are raised, you know, with Christmas trees. And they celebrate the holidays, you know. Right. They weren't Orthodox at all. And he was, uh, he was very... Um, but he, but he had this, this gift, gift, whatever it was. And uh, then he became a, a reader at the, the Christian Science, you know, the uh, Mary Baker Eddy. Right. Uh, you know, and he became a reader there. And then, uh, but he was still trying to do his business. And, uh, and the more he tried, the worse it got. And finally, he had to quit that business. Then he went into the healing business where he was healing. Yeah. And almost the same thing happened. But what people wanted to hear, they wanted to hear, hear his talks, you know? Yeah. So, so uh, he, you know, he, he became a healer. But but again, you know, trying to be a businessman healer uh, it, it didn't work out. And the way he became a healer was that his father texted him uh, that he was dying, or right. the hospital texted him. He was in England, and his father was dying. And then Mary Baker, or one of the Christian scientists, said, you know, your father doesn't have to die. You know, you can heal him. You know, so, and how do you heal him? He's well, yeah. you just concentrate on God. And so Joel did that and put his mind. And so he went to pick up his father on boat. That's how long ago it was. Yeah. And his father was on the dock waving. He was all healed. And so Joel became a healer. And then he started doing speeches like, like Emmett Parks. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and they were so in tune with everything that Emmett Fox, for instance, he he would be called to go say to Mexico City to do a speech, and he wouldn't even he would just get on the plane and get off the plane, and and there's no itinerary who's going to pick him up or anything else, mm-hmm. but he just knew that he was ordained to be yeah. there, and that someone would come and pick him up, and 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 that started happening to me. Yeah, uh, I was. Uh, Shelby and I, you know, my wife, we're in, in Australia, and she didn't like Australia because they're kind of mean to women. <laughs> so so she left early and went to Hawaii mm-hmm. with my son. He was a little guy at the time. And so and she said, okay, honey, I'll meet you in Hawaii. I said, okay, darling. And so I'm on the plane. I'm just The plane is getting ready to land. And then I realized I don't know where she is. She never told me what hotel she was going to be. Right. I had no idea where I was going to meet her, period. And there was no cell phones at the time. Yeah. You know? So the plane landed, and I just kind of said to myself, okay, where is she? And next thing you know, I, I took a cab, and I said, uh, take me to Waikiki Beach. Mm-hmm. And he took me to the beach. I got out of the cab, paid the money, and... I look up, there's my son, there's my wife <laughs> on the beach, on the yeah. sand. And I walk up and, and it was like, oh, hi, hon. You know, <laughs> it was, and then that's when I realized, you know, how, how, how we are if we allow ourselves to, to go there. To be open. You know, to be open, to let go. And, and but in order to be there, it's, it's, there's a whole measure of, of, of truth, mm-hmm. you know, you have to, you can't have any hidden agendas, you know, like you can't be doing any, any kind of hanky panky. Right. <laughs> it doesn't work with hanky panky. <laughs> right, right, right. You got to be open. You got to be open full wide. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and you have to be in tune. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what it is. And, and, and that's what I, I've been doing. Now. That's what meditation really is, by sure. the way. Med- yeah. Meditation is just rebooting. Mm-hmm. You know, you reboot yourself, you know. And that's what I, I tell people now. Oh, we're talking about comics, um, doing stand-up. Uh, I got invited. Oh, they wanted to give me an award at the Skirball Center. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and... Uh, and when they give comics a word, really, it's just a real cheap-ass way of getting them to do their act. <laughs> yeah. For, for, for uh, not even a trophy. Yeah, you yeah. Know, uh, you know, maybe a trophy, but some a glass or a, mm-hmm. something. It's just a cheap-ass trick to get them to. And then they load the, 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 the lineup with other comics that are working for the free meal or whatever it is, you yeah, know? Yeah. but it's for the cause, you know? Mm-hmm. And so they, they asked me, they're going to honor me. Oh, okay. Well, if you honor Cheech and Chong, you know, you give us a Grammy or something, yeah. you know, but honoring Tommy Chong by himself. And so, and so I've been in, into the spiritual, the world a lot, you know? And so I went there, no act. No, not even a bit. No, no <laughs> joke. Not one. You know, because when you're getting paid, you prepare. You, yeah. you get a show. You know, but this is a word. Oh, well, I'm going to give him the word. I'm going to give him a stream of consciousness <laughs> for a couple of minutes, and we'll see what happens. Yeah. Halfway through my stream of consciousness, my wife stands up and gives me the. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Yeah, yeah. And pull you <laughs> off the because I, I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't looking for a laugh. Yeah. I wasn't looking for a laugh. I just, I was there, and it was like almost like a Trump. You know, I was there, it's just stream of consciousness. <laughs> but, but I touch nerves. Yeah, I touch nerves. I talked about God. I talked about uh, seeing God. You know, yeah. I talked about uh, uh, you know our the, the way we are. Yeah. Uh, did I talk about that? I don't know. But anyway, I I, I took him on a <laughs> <laughs> I took him on a great trip. And then after I had this old Jewish guy come up, he says, "I want to hear more. I like to hear more. I like that." Yeah. And I did that in 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 Berlin too. We we're in Berlin for a pot thing, you know. And it was a tobacco uh, conference, and and they wanted me to to, to talk yeah, again. You know, like it's a comedian who mm-hmm. knows, you know. And this time I, I I did a whole rap about tobacco and smoking, and then I went very spiritual, you know. Mm-hmm. And and then after that, I, I, I'm getting a massage, you know. Again, it was one of those uh, uh, events, you know, where they have people doing massages and holistic that. stuff. And, and so so I'm laying on the table getting a massage, and this girl comes underneath, looking at my face. I love what you said. Oh, I just I can really relate to it. I want to hear more. <laughs> no, I'm having I'm having so much fun now with uh, with it because uh, you know, like the podcast. You know, they they, they ask me, uh, you know, <laughs> they ask me about weed, and 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 I'll get off into the into the um, uh, the God trip, and it makes like especially on Twitter. Oh, it makes them, you know, when when, when you uh, pull that card out, oh, it, it, it just really rubs a lot of these, uh, I guess, atheists or non-believers, it rubs them the wrong way, you know. Right. Yeah. yeah. They don't get it. Can't wrap their head around that. Yeah. 
purposely, and I go there purposely just for the, for that for that effect too, you know. Yeah. And, and because the thing is, those that have ears, they will hear, and those that don't, well, you know, they can ask or they can just be, you know, uncomfortable. I love making people uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> I do that at at dinner parties sometimes. In fact. With, especially with the Trumpies and all the, 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 you know, if there are new people there, I always say, yeah, well, when I was in jail, in the conversation, you get said, yeah. Oh, how many? Oh, I got to leave now. Okay. Uh, yeah, she's calling me. All right. We're, we're going to go watch, uh, watch the debate over at a friend's house. There you have it, part two of my chat with the one and only Tommy Chong. My thanks again to Tommy for so generously sharing his time and his cool story. I hope you will be back for the penultimate part three of episode 17 with Tommy Chong. That episode will be out any day now. Also, thanks again to another great entertainer, Mr. Jerry Stamp, who wrote and performed the Cool Story theme song and all of the other jingles and stings that appear on the show. Given that we stitched together so many chats in part one, I'm pretty sure that we used all of Jerry's guitar stings to keep things flowing between those segments. So thank you again, Jerry. I hope that Newfoundland is treating you well, and I hope to buy you a drink sometime soon at Zarpe when you do eventually return to Costa Rica. And as I always suggest, do yourselves a favor and look for Jerry's music wherever you stream. Jerry Stamp. Look him up. And finally, thank you for listening. Until next time, Pura Vida. Everybody's got a story What's yours?